Hey everyone, our guest today is Sam Cooper, author of a fantastic new book that you've got to read, Willful Blindness, How a Network of Narcos, Tycoons, and CCP Agents Infiltrated the West. It's Chinese Communist Party. That's what that stands for. And this book is, I got to tell you folks, this is such an eye-opener. Maybe you've had some questions about organized crime in Canada, about immigration fraud. What's going on in all those casinos? Are they 100% above board? Or is there some of the stuff you hear about or see in the movies happening in Vegas? Is that happening up here in Canada? What's with organized crime, triads? Is there some connection with fentanyl, drug dealing, and so forth? A few things maybe not above board. Maybe some politicians roped into it a bit here and there. Elected officials, could it possibly be? Yes. It could possibly be this book, Willful Blindness. It'll blow your mind. You've got to read this. And I'm really pleased to welcome Sam Cooper to the program, a post-media veteran now with Global News. Hey, Sam, great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. This is, again, I'm trying not to gush here, but this book was just such an eye-opener page after page. And I'm someone who tries to follow this file uh, as much as it is. But there's so many revelations in this book. Also, what's interesting is, yes, they're revelations, but they also go back decades. What a journey you have told. Yeah, it really was a journey. And the way I've told the book, it I think uh, I, I try to explain to the reader, it's an, it was an incredible reporting journey for myself that I really started as a young reporter in a journalism school in Vancouver, had my mind blown by the downtown east side. And just I, I couldn't... I couldn't understand, first of all, the, the level of heroin overdose deaths. I couldn't understand visually the open-air drug market beyond belief in Canada. So just as a young reporter, I knew there was something there. People did reports on, on this situation from time to time, but it never changed, and it just got worse. And one and thing so, that, that your yeah. book shows so interestingly, Sam, is when you bring that up, you know, downtown east side, and, and we're all familiar with those tragic scenes of, of people who are, who are really down and out and, and, and really suffering there on the streets of downtown Vancouver. Uh, but that is not a, an isolated situation. We talk about it in that regard that, okay, we have a drug problem, a problem on our streets and so forth. But when we talk about the casinos, when we talk about immigration fraud, when we talk about organized crime from abroad, your book shows this is all very much connected. You're right. I, I will say that my book has taken a step that others haven't in in finding those connections and seeing the geopolitics behind it. And let me just start by saying, I'll, I followed the trail from sort of the downtown east side to shock over uh, real estate prices in Vancouver and trying to understand what role offshore wealth played. And I eventually sort of stumbled onto this casino money laundering story and uh, your your listeners probably have heard a little bit about it, but it bears repeating. What I uncovered was that these whale gamblers, exclusively being flown in from mainland China, were literally carrying in hockey bags of Canadian $20 bills from 100000 wrapped consistent to drug proceeds, uh, up to $1.2 million is the largest ever single transaction. And this was shockingly common. So I exposed what's called the Vancouver model of money laundering. Really, it's the Macau model of money laundering. And what this is, is uh, ultra wealthy people from China need to get or want to get their corruption money out of China. So they use drug traffickers in Canada who are casino loan sharks. Really, the drug traffickers and the casino loan sharks are one and the same. Uh, and in many cases, the whale gamblers, drug traffickers and loan sharks, they're, they're criminal bosses. So they, uh, they make a deal to meet someone in a parking lot in outside River Rock Casino in Richmond, 
you know, get up to 500000 to a million dollars in cash, and the casinos were letting them launder this money into chips. It gets a lot more complicated in terms of the paths that the money follows, but the real clincher here is that these uh, industrialists, gangsters, just wealthy people from China would take out that drug cash loan in Richmond, pay it back in China, where their source of wealth is, into a criminal drug trafficking bank. So if you can see the loop, that this is facilitating production of fentanyl precursors in China. It, it's facilitating the shipment of the drugs into Vancouver. The money is, uh, the drugs are sold, the cash is laundered in casinos and real estate, and it's paid back in China. So I, I made the connections through my investigative reporting that this incredible underground banking loop was pouring into real estate. It was driving the uh, opioid death uh, totals across Canada. And really, I, I proved that Vancouver is now a hub for these transnational gangs based in China and producing fentanyl pills in Canada, shipping them around the world. And the, the last level is I tracked back in time and found that there was strong, strong connections between the transnational drug gangs, uh, tycoons from China, and the Chinese Communist Party. So at the highest level, this is geopolitics and uh, very much, uh, you know, it's not just about money laundering, intelligence operations, economic infiltration to benefit the Chinese Communist Party is all wrapped up in this scheme that has really, uh, the rot has become very deep in certain uh, municipalities in Vancouver and Toronto too. And it's amazing this is not discussed more and, and, and really broken down more than it has been, because I, I'm sure a lot of people listen in and go, oh yeah, I've been watching some of those Pablo Escobar things on Netflix and reading the stories. This is kind of like a small time version of that, isn't it? But based on what you write in the book and about how big this gets in Hong Kong and Macau and other jurisdictions around the world, no, no, this is not a small time version of Pablo Escobar. Pablo Escobar is a small-time version of this. That that's the realization that I'm glad you made, and I, I everyone that reads the book has to make that. That's exactly it. I I argue that as Canadians, we it's very hard for us to get our head around the fact that transnational gangs in Asia are the biggest, most powerful in the world. In fact, they have subordinated Latin American and Mexican cartels because they underground banking this cycle i'm talking about that's uh let's just name the cities macau hong kong shenzhen wuhan vancouver toronto melbourne would be very strong notes but in the western world vancouver uh probably the biggest and really markham in a very concentrated way is starting to compete and the data point here is that shylop say some of your listeners will recognize the name he's this alleged narco kingpin of a, a super cartel called the company he was just uh, ex uh, he's under an extradition order to australia but uh, he and his lieutenants 25 percent of this super cartel's leadership is based in vancouver and toronto most specifically markham shylop say very strong in markham and so my book showed this and explained that as you said for canadians we need to realize Transnet, the most powerful and prolific gangs in the world are being run out of Canada. But the key here is they are politically protected. Not only that, they are politically connected in mainland China and involved 
also in, you know, objectives for the Chinese Communist Party. You know, Sam, there's one really fascinating paragraph in, in one of the chapters in the book where you're talking about a warfare that's taking place in the streets of Macau, uh, people gu- gunning each other down, various different gangs fighting, uh, a, a nurse dying in the crossfire coming off her shift at a Macau hospital. And then you go on to say that uh, one of these gang leaders, he was ready for battle, but 10,000 kilometers from the war zone, living with his wife and young children in the East Vancouver home that he had bought in 1994 for $500,000, and in November 1996, armed with just his cell phone, he called in his orders. So we actually have kingpins who are, who are running the show, running gang warfare comfortably from their homes in suburban Canada. That's absolutely true. And uh, as I just said, this Chai Lop save figure People are surprised with reports in Reuters that, you know, this kingpin is a Canadian citizen that arrived in 1988 as a big circle boy in Toronto. Uh, My book shows that big circle boys arrived in from 86 to 88 to 90 across Canada, but especially in Toronto and Vancouver. And the big circle boys were involved. They were the ones that were charged or contracted by a uh, Hong Kong Macau triad to execute this rival gang boss set up in Vancouver, Tan Sang Lai. And uh, your realization is correct. In suburbs, you know, in sometimes in very nondescript homes, sometimes in what I call sprawling, massive Italianate mansions in the modern era that run illegal casinos, these are gang bosses that are calling shots around the world. And the most interesting thing that I found in that chapter, again, that both corroborated what I was hearing and reading, you know, in very uh, sort of legendary Canadian intelligence reports and from legendary, uh, well, let's just say credible sources, this case proved what they were saying. That is, uh, police were allowed, because of certain circumstances, they tapped the phone of this Vancouver gang boss. They tapped the phone of the people trying to kill him in Vancouver. They tapped the phones of highest level triad bosses in Hong Kong and Macau. And as the gang war raged in Macau, they were surprised to hear that a high-level Chinese official got on the line with his Vancouver gang boss and essentially uh, the, the phone taps say, this Mr. Kwok, we don't know his first name, started to mediate and said, okay, the Chinese state now, the, the gang war has to end. You need to start talking to this rival triad boss. In fact, we've installed a new boss who is not so brash wow. and does not want to kill you. And so the gang war ended within a few days. And funnily enough, uh, Macau casino boss Stanley Ho, his name came up in the phone taps as well or, or surrounding the case. So this all revolved around Macau casinos, their connections to high levels of the Chinese state and the triads warring for control of them. And the point was proven. The Chinese state uh, is interrelating and at the highest levels can direct these transnational gangs. Let's go back to something you just said at the beginning of those couple minutes there, Sam, because you said according to to police documents, according to police reports, because someone may hear what we're saying and go, where's Sam getting all of this from? And it's like, well, you're you're getting it from actual documentation that you've seen that has been shared with you from law enforcement, security sources, things that are documented that are sitting on the desks of various police forces across Canada and in senior offices in Ottawa and RCMP offices and so forth. I mean, people say, why aren't we hearing about this more? Well, okay, that's a question maybe we'll talk about in a few minutes, but this is something that is fully documented by Canadian law enforcement. Is that correct? It's fully documented. And uh, just to put a name to these legendary reports I'm talking about, the Sidewinder report was 
leaked uh, in the late 90s or early 2000s. This was a report by CSIS and the RCMP that uh, laid out this uh, the facts and evidence that the Chinese Communist Party had made a compact with these Hong Kong tycoons who uh, in some cases are triad bosses or dragon heads, in some cases do business with triads, and a compact was made that the party and uh, gangs will work together uh, financially and in order to sort of uh, prepare for the takeover of Hong Kong. Uh, the C- uh, this CSIS report said many of these uh, high-level gangsters and tycoons have successfully immigrated to Canada. They have uh, stick-handled, if you will, around red flags in immigration files. There's been corruption, and they have economically infiltrated at the highest levels of real estate, uh, Vancouver and Toronto. So this is this report was so, certainly it was buried and actually... Uh, from a large quarter of the political uh, establishment in Ottawa, the the report was scorned and and sort of there were attempts to discredit it. But what the records I have found in the modern era and also in federal court files that what I just told you about this uh, Mr. Kwok, a Chinese official directing a gang boss in Vancouver, uh, this is in federal court files. So there is both public source record, there are leaked intelligence reports. There are leaked casino money laundering reports and uh, matching intelligence that I get from high-level sources that really, uh, the, way I found, the way I got such detail and deep reporting on, in this book is that there are a number of people in, in various Canadian government agencies that believe Canadians need to know this stuff. And as hard as it is to believe, it was hard to believe for me until I saw so much corroboration and documentation. Uh, but, but here's the thing that that I'm really left asking here, and I know we're going to probably talk about some immigration fraud components as well here. Normally, Canadians get to know these things because, well, if you got all these shenanigans going on, you're going to have criminal charges. They're going to happen in an open court, and then court reporters are going to tell you what happened, and, and there comes the paper trail and the public documentation. But we've seen very little of that, despite the fact that these documents you're talking about, they go back 10, 20, 30 years. Well... There's so much going on. Uh, to, to answer your question, I'll draw on just a couple modern examples. Uh, we know very well what, what's going on, the controversy around the, the Winnipeg lab right now. A, uh, a scientist from China was working with People's Liberation Army researchers. CSIS had warned Canada's government this should not be happening. All kinds of dangerous material was sent to this Wuhan lab uh, in 2019 that is now the focus of... Uh, deeper investigations into whatever happened in that lab. Could it be related to the, the corona, coronavirus right. pandemic? Right. But this is the example. We are not hearing anything about the RCMP investigation. Clearly, the government at some level uh, is afraid of what it, what is in the RCMP and CSIS reports in this case. And I don't think that, uh, based on my knowledge, I, I really don't think criminal charges will come forward in that, in that case, even if it was the highest level espionage, because the government has ways of, of sort of avoiding that. Another case I report in my book is Cameron Ortis, the, the former RCMP highest level intelligence official. There's a publication ban on his court case, the level of uh, potential infiltration, potentially uh, giving protection to the highest level money launders and gangsters in the world. Uh, it's very clear that uh, Canada's um, 
justice powers that be do not want details to come out. This could be very damaging with our national security alliance partners, the United States, Australia. So those are just a few examples of why these details don't come out. The other factor is uh, Canada. Why can we not convict transnational narco bosses? Why did uh, Australia seek to extradite Chilopse in the Netherlands when he was bound to fly to Canada? Why did they go to the Netherlands instead of letting him land in his home base of Toronto? Because they know that the legal system in the Netherlands is much more conducive to work with allies like the United States and Australia to, uh, to bring people to account. And there's a lot going on there. But uh, what my sources would say, this would be experienced prosecutors, experienced police detectives. There's no such thing as a money laundering or a drug trafficking case where charter of rights sort of defenses don't come in. And it's mm. very difficult in Canada's legal system to get prosecutions and even to work with allies who, who give Canada amazing uh, facts and intelligence on who to target. In, in, for example, I write in the afterword of my book how Mexican cartels had such a strong base in uh, Vancouver after 2010. They were using the Chinese triad underground banks to launder their money. But the RCMP couldn't be a player while the DEA and uh, Australian police have all this information that uh, should be prosecuted in Canada. Yeah, it's interesting. You referred to when, you know, why aren't we getting more action on this? You mentioned justice officials. Now, uh, one can be partisan on this, and I'm sure various, uh, you know, people in, in the political discourse will say, oh, well, you know, Justin Trudeau, he's soft on China, he admires the basic dictatorship, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of truth to all of that. But like, come on, this is a person who's been prime minister since 2015. And what you were talking about is a problem that seems to have really locked in many years before that. So is this a is this a political will issue? Uh, is this a, a, a sort of systemic issue in law enforcement, in the justice system? I mean, what is, what's the real holdup? It's definitely uh, both. It, it's a systemic legal issue in that, uh, for example, New York City, the FBI was able to break the hold of the Italian mafia who had gripped uh, large portions, some would say even come to dominate New York City's economy, they only broke that uh, that grip with racketeering laws, which allow police to, you know, convict cases based on patterns and evidence and uh, to get wiretaps. In Canada, you know, there are very limited sort of organized crime uh, uh, prosecution laws. But I, I know at a high level, Bill Blair, the Minister of Public Safety, has been asked, based on the egregious transnational crime infiltration in BC, he has been asked directly, will you institute RICO or racketeering laws? And the, the answer is, uh, let's just you know put it this way, crickets, they're not moving on it. Some people tell me that it, the, this is, is, is the Charter of Rights you know, uh, an inhibition to deeper foundational justice principles is something that is such an excellent uh, legal framework for honest Canadians has it become a block against transnational criminals that are setting up in Canada. So that's a how's a it being used though? Issue. Because they're not they're not even getting to the you know it's not like their defense counsel even has to has the opportunity to stand up on the first day and make that argument. It's like uh, there's no willpower to even get to that point and force the issue. Prosecutors that are involved in the highest level cases that I talk about in my book these would be transnational gang bosses 
everyone knows that they're responsible for, they're most responsible for the highest level of fentanyl deaths in the world. They can't be prosecuted in Canada because uh, evidence disclosure requirements are so stringent in Canada. The ability to get wiretaps is so difficult in Canada that many of these cases uh, never get to trial. Many of these cases fall apart due to errors made with, you know, such vol voluminous disclosure requirements. Defense lawyers aren't even working. I'm told that defense lawyers are 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 a little bit upset that they they really don't get long trials. They don't get to get paid. Maybe that's. Yeah, I'm not trying to make light of it. People right. have told me that the the scales have been legally shifted so far towards you know organized crime in Canada. That's why we're getting this problem that is only now becoming recognized. And at the end of the day, it is political will. It would take, you know, bravery and actually a, you might have to slay a few sacred cows legally to realize that some uh, reforms need to be taken because uh, fentanyl deaths are, are, you know, this is, this, this is like a war-like death total. Real estate prices juiced by like, you know, billions, billions, uncountable billions of drug money in Vancouver and Toronto. Let me just, there was a fentanyl super lab busted in a Vancouver neighborhood three weeks ago. The RCMP said it could produce 13 million fatal doses per week. That's based on the raw precursors they found in this super lab. That uh, converts to something like a billion, perhaps even two billion uh, in profits on the street per month to whatever cartel is running that lab. So what I'm saying here is that the, the scales of justice are not being served by the damages we see in society at this point. It will take strong political will to, to have a fix for that. Well, let's talk about some of the political will that perhaps heads in the other direction. Some amazing things in here about politicians who are involved, compromised. I don't know what the terms are. Uh, one story that you tell, it, it is quite something. A municipal politician in British Columbia, a municipal councillor in Burnaby, BC, who was banned uh, from casinos in British Columbia. Uh, he would loiter around the VIP salon holding a man's purse. He was passing casino chips to players. Uh, it looked like he was a loan shark. Obviously, in the sanitized corporate language of the BC Lottery Corporation, a band lender or a cash facilitator, someone who could reasonably be suspected to be laundering criminal proceeds in the casino. The story goes on. Oh yeah, he leaves the casino in a black Porsche Carrera, uh, even though you know that his salary was $60,000 a year as a counselor at that time. This is an elected official in British Columbia. This is an elected official, and as I write, also a person who can vote on upzoning uh, applications made by, and I, I know this, by the very same whale gamblers that he would have been loan sharking, that is, lending out drug dealer cash to so that they could buy in, as they say, for maybe 500000 in casino chips per night in Burnaby or Richmond. So this is the highest level corruption you can imagine. It's clear that uh, a transnational gang got a hold of this one politician, and my book shows that it's very likely he's not alone. He would be, uh, in criminal law enforcement terms, his hands are the most dirty because they have him handing out drug money in casinos. They have him connected in secret files to various uh, very elite drug, uh, drug kingpins, this would be what my sources say. Redacted documents don't allow us to read some of the facts. But this is just, uh, you know, what appears to be the dirtiest of the dirty. But there's a whole network of politicians in British Columbia surrounding the casino business, 
uh, my my book points to a few that you know their their transactions might not be so direct as uh, this politician, but they could be lawyers, they could be counselors that are doing the bidding of the Chinese Communist Party through various community groups. And also, again, my intelligence sources point to very specific documents that won't be released in Freedom of Information that point to deep penetration of transnational organized crime into BC's political establishment. So the corruption is, uh, it's beyond scary. When you, I, in my book, I point to uh, whale gamblers that, uh, that were gambling tens of millions per year, very connected to China's military and state, very connected to weapons, uh, people below them. On, on the record, I can read the records, people below them in hierarchy charts that I obtained from the RCMP directly accused of being fentanyl precursor importers. And yet none of this was stopped until my reporting brought it to light. So, Sam, when we hear that we need to deal with what's going on with the Chinese Communist Party right now and their overtures around the world, uh, we did a great episode the other week with Josh Rogan from the Washington Post on his new book. When we read about that, when we read about, say, at the G7 recently, Joe Biden trying to pressure other G7 leaders to get on board in the efforts to to contain China, uh, hopefully try and get Justin Trudeau on board a bit more, do you think they're just talking about uh, Belt and Road Initiative matters and uh, the, the the killing of the Uyghurs in those concentration camps and all of those bigger geopolitical issues? Or do you think that this is also going on here? Is, is, this, is this something that's being talked about by world leaders? And is this part of, of the things they want to tackle? Or do you think that this is a, a see no evil, hear no evil thing? Well, we already know uh, this is a bipartisan move in the United States. Uh, uh, government officials across the board have filed uh, really briefs saying that Canada, where are you? Are you with us on your position on China's interference on China's threat? And specifically, Canada, are you with us on Chinese transnational crime threats? Right. Remember, my my book shows, and on deep reporting, China is the greatest threat through uh, interference, uh, threats to North American sovereignty. Uh, intelligence, but also Chinese transnational crime is the biggest public safety threat in Canada. This is in U.S. documents, Canadian documents. And uh, what my book shows is it, it all rolls together. You can't separate the transnational crime, the fentanyl. Why is it coming into North America? Why can China not stop it when they have full control of those factories? This all rolls into, uh, as my book argues, sort of intelligence operations and interference operations where uh, I have quotes from David Mulroney, former ambassador, who said, uh, I wanted to test, you know, this unbelievable theory that intelligence reports say, can the Communist Party, is it really using gangsters to infiltrate other societies? Mr. Mulroney said, there's no denying it. In diaspora communities, the party will use any tool and it it, one of its best tools is co-opting criminal networks so that it can try to control Canadians who uh, are of Chinese descent. Uh, it, there's intimidation, surveillance, there's violence, and this is it all rolls into something called the United Front. This is China's strategy to use indus- industrial tycoons, tech companies, uh, military operatives, and gangsters to sort of uh, spread the, and, and achieve their objectives abroad. Sam, one of the things that I find so so powerful about what's going on here is that some of the people who are speaking out the loudest and the most urgently about this are 
Asian Canadians themselves, people who have come to Canada because they want to be here in Canada. They want to get away from that stuff because they are the ones who are seeing what's going on. You mentioned growing challenges in Markham. I've had uh, emails from people who are in the area saying, hey, you know, you, you got to watch what's going on here, really trying to blow the whistle on all of this. I, I was speaking a, a couple years ago to a, I, I won't identify the person because it was kind of a private conversation, but a, a, an Asian lady who's a, a fairly prominent politician in Canada and uh, I was just asking her, oh, what do you think about all this stuff with China and the news? And I was surprised at the very aggressive response. Uh, she said she pretty much wants every single uh, barge that shows up at the Vancouver port, you know, open to check to, for fentanyl right away. And if you see any any fentanyl in there, you instantly charge everybody on the boat with murder, lock them up. And I was like, whoa, you know, this lady's hardcore in all of this. And I wasn't expecting that answer, but I think it underscores how I, I think Asian persons in Canada are actually some of the people most passionate about saying, come on, guys we got to do something about this. That's 100% true. Uh, a number of those people would be sources in my book that they speak of a, a real fear in the communities, especially in Toronto and Vancouver, where the vast majority of people have uh, traveled to Canada. Some you know, have been uh, multi-generational families, some more recent immigrants, but they came for freedoms and democracy. Uh, but there is a there is a, a battle going on in Canadian cities between lovers of freedom and democracy, and uh, a, a a smaller, I believe, but but very wealthy and powerful and well funded and supported by the Chinese Communist Party contingent that is very pro Beijing, that is very involved in essentially foreign interference for many reasons. So what is happening in Hong Kong? I'm sure you have come across in your reporting uh, uh, people in, in, in Toronto that are, they want to speak about their family members in Hong Kong, their fears for that society, their, their uh, sorrow for what's going on in Hong Kong, but they're also afraid to show their face or, or use their name. And for good reason, uh, gangs are being used in Hong Kong to intimidate democracy protesters. And the same thing is happening in Vancouver and Toronto. My book shows that explicitly. I'll, I'll just raise the one powerful anecdote that I would say people ask you, what are those aha or motivational moments that really drove you to, to overcome whatever hurdles and, and, and write this book? And a number of Hong Kong Canadians were in a Vancouver church the fall of uh, 2019. You'll remember all these uh, democracy and counter-democracy protests going on in Vancouver and Toronto. They were praying for peace in Hong Kong. They were surrounded by about 100 uh, extremely aggressive pro-Beijing nationalists waving large red flags. They had to be escorted to safety by Vancouver police. They had their pictures taken. People were running up close to get photos of their face. This uh, to them, and they've testified about this now, uh, they've been on Parliament Hill in these China-Canada relations committees. They believe their identities were captured for intelligence reasons this can be used as threats against family members in mainland China or Hong Kong. And my reporting showed that some of those people in the crowd were very connected to both the Chinese state at a good high level and also those organized crime suspects that I uncovered in the casino money laundering. These would be people with military and uh, allegedly intelligence connections. So that's, you can, let's just use some uh, some bald language. That's sort of an evil nexus <laughs> that, that is right. operating in Vancouver and Toronto. One of the things that's most interesting is, 
you talk about back in the 1980s, a meeting that Deng Xiaoping, who was the paramount leader of China at the time, had with two individuals who would later go on to play a prominent role in what's going on on Canadian soil and, and all of what you're talking about right now. And I found it so interesting because, I mean, China watchers and who, who want to see China be a more liberal country would generally consider Deng Xiaoping, out of all the leaders, to be a bit more of a hero in that category. I mean, Mao is a uh, very hardline, and now Xi Jinping is described as pretty much the most hardline leader since Mao. But De Deng Xiaoping Peng, he's the guy who liberalizes and so forth. But but you've said, well, Deng Xiaoping actually met with these these criminal enterprise leaders. And as you were saying earlier, Sam, they put together basically a deal to kind of broker peace between them and cooperation and to allow them to go on and do their thing. And then those those very people who were in that meeting with Deng Xiaoping, they were pulling some of the levers of what was going on here in Canada, here in Vancouver. That's right. And uh, the point on Deng Xiaoping is, look, uh, the, the people that really get uh, the party in Beijing know that it's always going in one direction. Some leaders may approve, uh, appear to be, you know, the iron-fisted. Some may be more palatable to uh, Western sensibilities, but uh, they're they're going in the direction of uh, wanting to dominate and become a global power. In fact, to become the global power. So. Yes, uh, this is one of those examples in my book where I had seen things in Vancouver that I couldn't believe in 2017. That is these connections between Chinese military figures and known the roughest uh, gangsters and alleged fentanyl dealers in town. And I thought this lines up perfectly with the CSIS report that says high level Chinese state actors are working with organized crime and in foreign lands. And indeed, that uh, the intelligence about Deng Xiaoping meeting with uh, the highest level Hong Kong tycoons is about that compact where the party says to the tycoons who are very connected to heroin trafficking gangs, uh, we'll work with you in Hong Kong if you work with us in Beijing. And again, the Macau Casino tycoons, as my book quotes uh, a Canadian official that was there in the 1990s in Hong Kong, the Macau Casino tycoon owners are connected to Chinese intelligence and the Chinese Communist Party. And again, they're connected to drug trafficking gangs and their major Canadian real estate investors. This is what occurred through immigration fraud. And uh, those uh, that's according to the allegations that I make the argument in the book, this is a cold case. There are, Canad there are former CSIS, former immigration officials, former RCMP that have been sort of sitting on their, you know, zipping their lip for decades, and they really believe this should be a national inquiry at this point to see how high that corruption went in the Hong Kong, Canada's Hong Kong uh, Commission. Well, you know, it's really interesting because when when you hear all these anecdotes about things going on or, or that person who was basically running uh, Macau Street Wars from his cell phone in his home in Vancouver, you go, how, how are these guys even here? How did that happen? As you write in the book, Sam, you say most Canadians want their government to have humanitarian immigration policies. So we have various programs where we are, I think, quite rightfully uh, sympathetic and open to bringing in people for humanitarian reasons, refugees, of course, and, and you know, you poll on that and Canadians are, are very much in support of all of that. But you write, but the flip side of a porous immigration vetting system is a society in which Asian women are forced into selling their bodies in underground casinos and body houses in big North America 
American cities. They are victims paying extortionate debts to loan sharks, and Toronto and Vancouver are the hubs of this human trafficking used to supply gangs in the United States with sex slaves. So, Sam, uh, the way you write about some of these uh, various humanitarian ways to, uh, to get immigration here in Canada or the Immigration Investor Program is that there's a lot of exploitation going on. I mean, we're doing a lot to bring good people here to Canada uh, who are coming for the right reasons and being honest in their applications, but we've also got a lot of cases slipping through the cracks. That, that I for this story, I worked with a colleague uh, who who's very uh, very involved in immigration files, and my framework is exactly you know you read the passage that uh, we have the best humanitarian framework, a country of of immigrants, a multicultural society. What we haven't been good at, and I believe the reasons are greed and willful blindness, is that people at high levels have not responded. Uh, to uh, to warnings about vetting some of the the most powerful predators in the world, who are predators where where they come from, are allowed to exploit Canada's system in some ways uh, in corruption and in some ways just to the systemic uh, failures. Canada has been horrifically bad at at vetting out some very dangerous people, and that's really the the book. The thesis of the book is that what I saw. You know, as a, a reporter, getting my legs in Vancouver year after year, learning more, having my mind blown, I I then became somewhat of a historic investigator and went back to this ca- these cases in Hong Kong and realized the game was already lost in uh, the early 1990s and that the most powerful people, we're not talking about people that are laundering casino chips or uh, buying a, a condo here and there with fentanyl proceeds. We're talking about people that were connected to the Chinese state and buying huge swaths of land to develop in the 1980s and 1990s. Those were people that were flagged for being some of the most dangerous criminals in the world, and they got into Canada. Some were rejected, but uh, a majority, a very significant majority, did exploit both through corruption and through uh, immigration investor systems that have uh, shown to be basically frauds that is the national system and quebec system they're both out of existence now because they were proven to be so problematic you know i remember reading a news story about uh immigration and refugees from from another part of the world not from china and and macau and those areas and it talked about a lady who was just out and about in a toronto city she had been uh sexually assaulted sexually abused back in another country she uh, received refugee status here in canada and she was walking on the streets she paused she froze she saw her abuser on the streets of Canada. That person was also able to unscrupulously, to scrupulously, pardon me, lie in his application, and he made it to Canada. So you had the abused uh, getting status here in Canada as a refugee, as she should have. And then the other person, the abuser, gets into Canada by abusing the system. Are we seeing things like that happen in the files you're talking about? You know, people are trying to escape all of this madness that's going on, and yet some of these, some of these villains are also the people slipping in. That that's certainly happening. There are intelligence operatives that uh, have have claimed to be refugees, uh, and the Canadian system was so uh, blind in some ways that they didn't ask. You say you're a refugee, but you imported, you know, perhaps a few million dollars to your wife in Vancouver before you arrived. If you're a refugee, how are you also a millionaire? And uh, within weeks or months, this same person would be cited by Vancouver police as 
uh, a member of the Big Circle Boys, uh, investigated constantly, co- uh, put up on prosecutions on drug charges, loan sharking, extortion charges uh, from year to year, but never convicted, somehow able to uh, evade deportation. And it just shows that both uh, the vetting is is letting down the victims of that loan shark. Again, let me stress that uh, one of the, I, I won't name the person now, it probably won't mean anything to, to anyone, but a very powerful gangster on Canada's West Coast that would come before a judge and, and be accused of cleaning out all the furniture of a woman's house and uh, checks from all other loan shark victims found in a warehouse, weapons, uh, raw opium. And this isn't enough to get this person who was already facing deportation in in sort of the, uh, the 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 quick line where okay let's get this case cleared and, and deportation he's still doing business allegedly as a high level gang boss and loan shark in this very richmond river rock casino uh in my book we we point to a case in in 2014 where a million dollar transaction occurs and this person uh facilitating allegedly from a range rover in the parking lot so your question was do i do i know of these cases i know of cases of predators that are victimizing canadians they're victimizing especially chinese canadians is what the record shows uh violent home invasions and yet nothing was done to stop it the the canadian justice system seemed um just weak ineffectual and i believe in some cases corruption had to have come into it and Sam, what I also find interesting about your book is that there was actually a lot of attempts to stop it by some Canadian officials who were thwarted by others. You write about a 1990s document that was put together uh, from a from a Hong Kong office, a Canadian office in Hong Kong, by law enforcement there, uh, sending it here back to Canada so border, border officials and others in the immigration system could block the immigration applications uh, from triad bosses, from gangsters, from criminals, and so on. And it was later discovered that there were a number of Canadian officials that actually tore up reports worked to make sure that they couldn't be distributed properly, that they couldn't get to the right people uh, in CSIS, in foreign affairs, in immigration. And actually a follow-up report concluded that at least one of those people who had played a role in, in not getting this information sent around went on to become one of Ottawa's most influential uh, advisors, advising prime ministers on foreign affairs, trade, and national security. That is jaw-dropping. It's jaw-dropping, and I'll, I'll speak around what I can. Uh, in that report, uh, I've redacted certain names, but I've also left enough information that the people that wrote those reports in the 1990s still want to see examination of why uh, these warning documents were suppressed, according to their evidence. And this this network that we're speaking about that, that potentially could have been criminally compromised this points directly back to this Vancouver gang boss who was directed by his uh, boss, essentially, in the Chinese state to stop this Macau gang war. He's part of that very same network that was blocked in one immigration application uh, through Quebec due to the good work of uh, uh, an immigration officer in Hong Kong. And then he uh, went through the back door in Los Angeles and came into Vancouver. So what I'm saying is there are direct, specific cases, and then there are broad uh, cases where, at a high level, these warnings are ignored and torn up. And yes, the people that are allegedly behind turning a blind eye continue to rise to powerful positions in Canada's uh, government and, and foreign affairs. 
You know, Sam, to bring it all full circle, when we have news stories that say, oh, it's so hard for a millennial to buy a home in Vancouver. Oh, we've got a fentanyl crisis on our streets. Oh, there's gang warfare. Oh, we're concerned about, you know, other questions with Chinese Communist Party and funding research and so forth at Canadian institutions. This all ends up involving some of the same criminal leaders, criminal leaders who we do have files on that Canadian authorities know about and that some other Canadian authorities are saying, stand down, don't tackle this issue. And that we have known that all of these problems have been converging and, and coming together for a number of years now in this country. That's right. Let's talk again about Mr. Chilop Say, allegedly the more uh, prolific, powerful, wealthy, and sophisticated than Pablo Escobar ever was. To my knowledge, still a Canadian citizen. Again, wow. has, has not, <laughs> could he not be deported? Could that citizenship not be withdrawn? Could, as my sources say, uh, the man has a, a real base of operations in Markham, has connections to banking, has family members in Markham that have, uh, uh, ha have been of interest to, to investigations. What is going on in that case? Why is Canada a weak link in international law enforcement that Australian federal police have to travel to Ottawa and say, we're aware that this man is essentially running this cartel absentia through his lieutenants in Markham, and uh, can you do something? And Canada really can't do anything. So at a high level, uh, I, I would have to put it this way. Some of my sources say, again, I'll point to documents that say some, uh, there are documents that allege deep corruption involving the People's Republic of China into some portions of Canada's political establishment, especially in BC, Ottawa, and Montreal. And it has to be, I, I'm told that there are records that say some of these transnational gang bosses are involved in corruption. So if they are involved in corruption and they're also allegedly uh, tied to sort of Chinese military and intelligence objectives at some level, that's just hugely concerning for Canada's future. And we've talked about it. We don't see these cases coming to court. And, and why is that? All right. Speaking of the future, people hear this, people get outraged. They say, we have to do something. Let's say we get a new RCMP boss in, a new CSIS director. Uh, there's a new prime minister who goes, this is an issue. This is a priority. We got to tackle it, an NGO, an activist group, what have you. Sam, based on everything you know, those, that, those people, those groups, those organizations, what should they do as the first step in all this? Because I, I, I got to say, it's difficult just to, to talk about the problem and assess the problem and, 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 and get it all in your headspace at one moment, let alone, how do we solve it? At a high level, uh, I always like to think of upstream solutions. And what I'm arguing in the book is that this foreign interference is interrelated with uh, the, the Communist Party using powerful gangs in Canada, attempting to infiltrate society economically through uh, uh, tycoons and gangsters, attempting to influence Canadian officials uh, through gangsters, attempting to intimidate a diaspora lovers of democracy, Hong Kong Canadians, Chinese Canadians that want to be free in Canada, they're under threat and say that the government doesn't have our back. And there's an answer. Uh, our National Security Parliamentary uh, Intelligence Committee has filed reports for several years now saying transnational crime and money laundering is a huge and growing concern uh, in Canada. It's a national security concern. Foreign interference from China is a huge concern. They're running covert fox hunt operations in Canada. And Australia, 
a very similar nation in many ways to Canada, has taken the lead uh, on this global threat with very strong anti-interference laws to tackle their, their concerns with China. So there's a blueprint sitting in front of the Prime Minister's office and Parliament, really, uh, from this committee saying Australia is an exemplar. They face the same problems. This is uh, probably the worst threat that Canada faces. Of course, Russia and Iran are, are dangers in Canada in very similar ways. But China is the number one threat. No one, no one disputes that. So there's, there's a blueprint. And why isn't the government acting on it? That would be at the highest level what Canada could do. And then uh, at, at, at lower levels, we, we cascade down to these legal system reforms that, that we've discussed. There needs to be some sort of alignment with Canada's allies to, to understand that the, the modern reality is transnational gangs and uh, militaries and intelligences services of hostile states are working together to, uh, to, to infiltrate the West. The, I'll give you one example. Uh, this is not just talking out of school. We know the FBI came out last summer and said that uh, Chinese transnational gangsters are being used by Chinese intelligence to try to hack into vaccine research during the pandemic. Wow. And so that just shows you the level of concern. And uh, Canada is not on the team of our allies in being able to prosecute and even attribute some of these crimes uh, that are taking place. Willful Blindness, How a Network of Narcos, Tycoons, and Chinese Communist Party Agents Infiltrated the West. We've really only just begun to scratch the surface. There's so much more in this fantastic book by Sam Cooper. You got to check this out. Sam, good on you for writing this book. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for stopping by. Well, thanks so much. Full Common is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.